arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. I'd turn back if I were you. Ridiculous. Spooks. That's silly. Don't you believe in spooks? No. Why oh, oh. <laughs> Are you all right? I do believe in spooks. I do believe in spooks. I do, I do, I do, I do, I do, I do believe in spooks. I do believe in spooks. I do, I do, I do, I do, I do, I do. I do believe in spooks. I do believe in spooks. I do believe in spooks. Well, at least Greg in this book should believe in spooks, but he doesn't. At dinner, Caroline is stunned by what Greg reveals about his own life. Later, Greg will be warned, as they were in The Wizard of Oz... Except it's not about turning back, but going to Chicago that night with the consequence of death. What unfolds is a disaster that threatens to destroy Caroline. As in The Wizard of Oz, there is a way out. That way challenges Caroline and Greg through time and a reckless dead-end kid who will stop at nothing to ferment his own brand of evil. I'm Robert P. Fitton, journey with me down the river of fate to what lies beyond in the darkness. The River of Fate by Robert P. Fitton begins now. Chapter 1 6.22 p.m., December 20th, 1992. The past followed Greg like a haunting spirit, inundating and controlling his life. His bizarre outbursts and vague references to his youth in Pennsylvania were now making Caroline uneasy. He rambled, gestured wildly, and referred to things he had never mentioned to her. When he ordered another bottle of champagne, she feigned a trip to the restroom. She thrust the butt of her hands into the restroom door and entered the cooler room. Her heels clicked against the tiles, and then she paced. He wanted to visit the fortune teller in the restaurant's main room. Maybe pacifying him would ease his inner pain and lift his mood. Three years ago, she had married a cheerful, outgoing guy with a quick wit and sense of humor. Not the glum and depressed man ranting back at the table. A promising evening of elegant dining and heading into town to the symphony had now collapsed because of Greg's borderline behavior. How could just a few glasses of champagne make him so boisterous and self-deprecating? During their time together, he had never indicated, even when drunk, that something traumatic had occurred back in high school. Caroline wanted to make things right for her husband. Her long black hair fell over her silky red evening dress. 
Even buying the dress now seemed a wasted effort. Her stomach wrenched with the realization that her husband might be hiding something important. Whether she brought him back home or to the symphony, she would at least have to find the source of his problems. She wiped the liquid rose-scented soap in her hands and ran the icy water over her skin. Then she dried her hands with the paper towels. With a precarious nudge, she opened the restroom door. The sounds of banging dishes and low-level conversation returned. Greg stared into a half-filled champagne glass, his gray hair highlighted by the wavy firelight. She crossed the room deliberately, determined to remain upbeat, yet she clenched her fists all the way to the table. Greg, you said you wanted to see that clairvoyant before we catch the train. His head snapped to the right, and his dark eyes were heavy behind his glasses. You mean the gypsy? Gypsy, right. She sat down slowly. The bayberry candles softened the atmosphere with an inviting yellow flickering flame and a soft sweetness in the air. But the liquor on his breath permeated the table area. His wide jaw dropped, and he shook his head as he peered mournfully through his silver-rimmed glasses. Greg, what's wrong? His thin mouth twisted like an unraveling knot. I don't want to talk about it. All right. By the way, my parents called, and we're all squared away for Christmas in Michigan. Ben wants to visit Aunt Amy's grave. He tapped his fingers incessantly on the white linen tablecloth as his leg thumped below. Then he swished the bubbling amber champagne around the chilled glass. You don't understand, Lina. This is an anniversary for me. Anniversary of what? December 20th, 1968, the date of my accident. What accident? Again, the champagne's rising gold effervescence captivated him. I started the day with the sharpest of reflexes and with two good eyes. Caroline leaned forward, her round face tensed as she squinted. Greg, Greg, your bad eye, you said it was congenital. Greg had the panic of a man about to have the taut gallows rope draped around his smooth skinned neck. No, it's time I told you, Lina. December 20th, 1968, at 4.41 p.m., I went crashing into the backboard during a high school basketball game. Well, you never told me that. She held his sweaty hand. That was Paul Revere High School, right? He slurred his words, and he had a distant ambiance in his eyes, as if he were really back in 1968. Yeah, Reedsville, Pennsylvania, on the Emmitsburg River. I was a good basketball player, Lina. I didn't bother with college after the accident. I just drifted into construction out here. Then I got my real estate license when I was 30 wasn't the way I wanted my life to go. Greg, when we met, I thought you were always in real estate. No, 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 no. He abruptly turned toward the connecting sports bar. I want to see that gypsy fortune teller. Ben said this woman would scare the hell out of you. My uncle can be melodramatic, and he loves the paranormal. The paranormal actually scares me, Greg. 
Maybe we should just go home. Greg became serious again. Back then, there were college scouts hounding me all the time. I played all the summer leagues in 68. By fall, no one could touch me. In December, we finalized things with UCLA. I was signed by UCLA, Lina. Ah, who cares about all that? I want to hear my good fortune from that gypsy. Caroline squeezed his huge hand. Honey, this is awful. I had no idea that it all ended right there in that old high school gym at the top of the hill. Next morning when I came to in the hospital, I knew right then and there it was all over. Maybe we should just go home. We can... I don't know when I first started hanging around Marco St. Germain. My big opportunity to become a man. You know, see how much I could drink? He slowly removed his glasses and placed them on the table. Then he rubbed his eyes and spoke slowly. Marco is serving time for murder at SCI Huntington in Pennsylvania. I was right next to him when he did it. You what? We were just riding around town and smashing pumpkins on the streets. Halloween pranks. But we were going 60 miles an hour on the high school hill. Marco targeted Merle Kiefer because Merle Kiefer knew that Marco was dealing drugs. He killed Merle Kiefer, Caroline. I was the one who testified against Marco. He put on his glasses and stood abruptly, rocking the chair against the wall. Caroline rounded the table and pressed her hand against his graying hair. She put her arm around his cotton shirt and escorted him into the coat room. Greg paid the attendant and then retrieved their coats. She took his arm again and he looked toward the bar corridor. You know, we can go home and make a nice fire and... Nah, I want to know the future. As they entered the smoky lounge, a jazz band played atop a hazy blue-lit stage near the bar, and a few couples danced across the parquet floor. But Caroline slowed and stopped when a white-haired woman, reading tarot cards on a candle-lit green felt table, raised her deep-set magnetic eyes. In the haze, Greg pivoted around the bar patrons. He swayed with the music, laughing as he grabbed Caroline and spun her forward. This is great! Ben says that other worlds and spirits are right out there. Caroline tried to avoid the gypsy's penetrating eyes. Your uncle would drop his life savings if this gypsy here could get it to pay off for him in the sixth race, Caroline. Are you saying Ben has a gambling problem? Yeah, problem is he can't win. I hope Ben does win it big. He looped his arm around her as they strolled closer to the stage until they were precariously close to the woman. A jolt surged through Caroline's stomach. The frosty-haired old woman set multicolored tarot cards on the table. Her placid raven eyes ignited as she stood and pointed her shaky finger at them. Why is she pointing at us, Greg? I don't know, the old bat. She'll hear you. At the sight of the gypsy's waxed and wrinkled face, Caroline recoiled behind him. The woman lowered her hand, slowly stepped onto the rug, and with an almost painful gait, she shuffled toward them. What the hell's going on here? 
a cooling breeze accompanied by a foul odor furrowed Caroline's hair. The gypsy's skin appeared deathly gray. She spoke with a husky, thick foreign accent and raised her crooked index finger toward Greg. Go home. Do not go to the city. Stay away from those forces that are lurking in the shadows behind your control. Why did you tell me to go home? Your life is in danger. Caroline cringed as she clutched her husband's arm. The old lady turned but did not go back to the table. Instead, she squeezed into a narrow paneled hall near the kitchen. Greg broke free and chased her as Caroline trailed behind. He caught the old woman near the exit sign as she prepared, without a coat or a hat, to leave the building. Why? Why is my life in danger? Caroline stopped behind him and clung to the stainless steel food racks as the lady raised her head ever so slowly. Her coal eyes reflected an intense inner turmoil, and her gruff voice added to her unworldly demeanor. One more time I will say, you must go home. If you do not go home, you will never reach your destination. I hear wonderful music and I see the lights of the city. But there is evil there. Evil pursues you. She shuddered as if she were trying to expel some inner demons and closed her eyes as her voice reverberated into the hall. But this future does not have to be. Go home now before it's too late. I don't understand, evil. What is it you see? Why should I fear going to the symphony? How can my life be in danger? Immutable forces that form the rivers of fate. She rolled her eyes to the whites. I sense these forces of evil. Evil. My mind it travels through the wakes that are left behind by evil. Beware, young man. The rivers of fate are converging on your very soul. With that, she pushed the metal door bar and trundled under the glowing red exit sign into the snowy parking lot. Then she simply blended into the storm. Caroline, her mouth dry and hanging open, rushed to her taller husband. My God! Well, I'll second that, said Greg, still looking outside. Greg, get me home right now. Greg's face flattened. The falling snow oddly transfixed him. Then he faced her. If we go home now, Caroline, we'll always wonder about tonight. Who cares? I don't even want to go out in the parking lot, Greg. That woman, she... She gets paid to scare people. He took her hand, but as they walked outside, Caroline shivered uncontrollably. Greg, his breath steamy as he spoke, embraced her as they reached his Volvo. He popped the locks with his remote and again panned the parking lot, but the woman had slipped away. They got in the car and he started the engine. I hear what you're saying, Greg, said Caroline. If we don't go to Chicago, we'll always believe that what she said was true. But why take the chance? Chapter 2 7.45 p.m. December 20th. 
1992. Greg had Caroline laughing on the train into the city. Maybe she had just imagined the trouble in the restaurant. As the floor heaters pushed the warmer, dry air upward into the train and snow fell gently under the glowing street lamps, he held her hand. Near the symphony stop, she tapped his shoulder and pointed at the colorful Christmas bulbs along the boulevard. He smiled and looked outside as the train speakers suddenly played Christmas bells and chimes. Well, welcome to Christmas, he said, raising his brows. At the symphony stop, she took Greg's arm and exited into the biting air. The lengthy boulevard had become a magnificent winter scene, with the bare, snow-sifted tree branches strung with clear Christmas bulbs. The snow tapered off only a few blocks away from Symphony Hall's brick facade. Greg alerted her to the department store display ahead. The window reflected the clear lights. This reminds me of Binghamton's department store back in Reedsville. They used to hang the bulky old colored lights from building to building. She studied his teary eyes. That was a long time ago. 9.45 p.m., December 20th, 1992. The old lady's dire predictions faded once they were among the hundreds of music patrons inside the ornate gold-painted and spacious hall. The symphony stage, decorated with an intricate Victorian motif, with Christmas trees lighted with dozens of white candles, lifted her spirits and allowed her the illusion of a simpler time. Despite the formal nature of the event, Greg slowly put his arm around her and comforted her earlier fears as Handel's Alleluia Chorus shook the hall. Being in the city salvaged the evening, and his earlier revelation made her realize how deeply she loved him. Her time with Greg passed much too quickly. Hundreds of larger white tapers flickered before the final musical selections. A single flute and a crisp French horn added tranquility to their time together. And when the concert ended, the ensuing silence bolstered the overall feeling of peace. Greg's face assumed a pensive seriousness as they reached the outside steps to South Michigan Avenue. A hint of snow returned to the nippy air, but he remained deep in thought as they stepped through the steam rising from the manhole cover. Then the expression left his face like a car running out of gas, and his eyes darted around the crowd. Lina, we need to get out of here right now. Greg, what's the matter? Why do we have to leave now? He yanked her onto the sidewalk. I could swear to God I just saw Marco St. Germain from high school back there. But that's impossible. He's in jail for murder. I think that old woman put Paul Revere High School in Reedsville, Pennsylvania in your head. I know what I saw. He alternated glances down the busy sidewalk. You're starting to freak me out, Greg. The brightly colored Christmas lights shone in his glasses as he surveyed the snow-lined street. They remained stuck in the crowd, but Caroline saw an opening ahead. Turning, she gazed skyward at the hall's fluted pillars, but a blunt, violent push caused her to slip and nearly lose her balance. In the confusion, she grasped his arm as more people flared out along the sidewalk. A quick, Cracking gun volley cut the cold night air, and Greg's body tensed. His glasses flew off as he cried out and collapsed with her to the sidewalk. His glasses flew off as he cried out and collapsed with her to the sidewalk. Fifteen feet away, 
an unshaven balding man with beady black eyes thrust the smoking steel barrel of a small revolver into the night he sneered at her momentarily fanned the gun and everyone scattered then he leaped onto the wet pavement and fled down the boulevard caroline's fingers sunk into the spongy wetness of her husband's bloodied white shirt greg she said in almost a whisper and then lost control greg they've killed my husband they've killed my husband emotions raced ahead of her perceptions two men appeared from the crowd bent down and loosened greg's collar the gawking assemblage formed a large circle around them as several other men pushed them back and cautioned the onlookers to give Greg some air. Over the shortwave, she heard that an ambulance was en route from Mercy Hospital. She closed her eyes and thought back to the old woman's warning in the restaurant. Why had this Marco St. Germain come back to shoot Greg? A siren grew louder, and bright red and yellow lights flashed on the brick facade as police swarmed into the crowd. Blasting handheld radios crackled and echoed through the Symphony Hall sculptured pillars. Two EMTs in white uniforms placed Greg's motionless body on a stretcher, hooked up a number of tubes, and lifted him into the red and white ambulance. A husky, buzz-cut police officer in a blue vest helped her inside. The door shut as if they had entered a vault, and the ambulance lurched forward. With a plastic oxygen mask secured tightly over Greg's mouth and nose, the EMTs hovered around his body. Like a fixture, Caroline sat against the metal wall as the ambulance rumbled over the city streets, and she tried to convince herself this had never happened. Two police officers escorted her into a small office of a green-tiled emergency room. Ahead, they whisked Greg through the sliding doors. Someone gave her a styrofoam cup of coffee. She gripped the warmth in her hands and listened to the cops' questions. Her face and body numbed as she told them about Paul Revere High School in Pennsylvania. The police fed the information about Marco St. Germain into their open radio channel. His name, broadcast over the short wave, sent terror through her emotionally drained body. Her cluttered mind flashed with the image of the gypsy woman and the grubby Marco St. Germain pumping bullets into her husband's body before darting away from the crowd. 10.46 p.m., December 20th, 1992. A nurse handed her another cup of coffee as the same crew cut officer strode back into the office. He pursed his lips and reported a bloody shootout less than six blocks from Symphony Hall. Pursuing officers had gunned down Marco St. Germain, Greg's high school acquaintance, and he had died inside Grant Park. He escaped from the state correctional facility in Huntington, Pennsylvania, 48 hours ago, said the cop. Greg helped put this man in jail, and nobody bothers to tell us there was an escape? I'm sure it was some kind of slip-up. Slip-up? <laughs> A slip-up, and now my husband is dying. She closed her eyes momentarily and sat down as a doctor in green fatigues, mask loose at the neck, appeared with an operating room nurse in the doorway. The police officers outside stared as the doctor crept into the office. I don't want to hear the words. No, no, no. Your husband died ten minutes ago, Mrs. Provost, said the doctor performing his duty. You have my condolences. We did everything that we possibly could. 
Jesus, God. Caroline clenched her fist below her nose as a surge of rage split her stomach. Only minutes ago, Greg had held her hand. How could he die in this bizarre act of revenge? She fell back into the chair, buried her head in her hands, and the tears drenched her cheeks and dress. Caroline? Her uncle's big blue eyes, jowls, and bushy white hair came into view. She lunged from the chair and threw herself against him and wept into his heavy coat. Oh, Ben, Ben, Greg is dead, Ben. I know, Caroline, I know. They just told me when I came in. Just hold on, hold on. She locked her arms around him and they shuffled back into the corridor. How would the pain ever stop? How could it get any worse than seeing her husband's life evaporate before her eyes on a snow-covered Chicago boulevard? She held on to her uncle and moved forward. Chapter 3 Six months after Greg's murder, the sadness persisted. Trips back to her parents' house in Michigan and a weekend at her brother's house did nothing to ease her pain. Like a spreading virus inside her body, she thought of Greg constantly. In January, she returned to teaching math at the middle school, but December's events consumed her thoughts. Her devotion to her students would not erase the terrible tragedy infecting her life. As summer vacation approached, Ben arranged a 10-day Caribbean cruise commencing on June 15th. She bounced between website destinations in Jamaica and Mexico where the Hannibal Cruise Lines had ports of call. Two hours passed one day when she did not think of Greg at all, but she became overwhelmed with guilt when she replayed his bloody death in her mind. She stared teary-eyed out the window at the huge suburban homes that were filled with families and married couples along Eastview Drive. 3.19 p.m., July 15, 1993. An unusually heavy humidity hung in the late spring air as dark clouds accompanied a cold front, causing severe thunderstorms and heavy downpours. Caroline left late for the airport. She packed some newly purchased clothes and Greg's high school yearbook into her lavender suitcase. In less than an hour, she had to meet Ben aboard the plane. She took the shortest way to the airport, averting any rush hour traffic on the connector road through the woods. She would easily catch the plane if she hurried. The wipers pushed back the rain. She reached into her carry-on as she had on quiet afternoons at the cemetery and slid out Greg's crimson vinyl yearbook. The inside covers contained a black and white overlay of Paul Revere High School in Reedsville, Pennsylvania. In handwritten ink, the simple verses of Greg's high school friends were scrawled across the inner cover photograph of the school's large stone columns and front steps. The wide quadrangle slabs and their symmetrical alignment to the Roman numeral clock tower high above mesmerized her. Beautiful old trees spread over the walkway. The adjacent parking lot full of oversized cars harkened back to another era. She turned the glossy pages quickly until she found Greg's black-and-white formal high school picture. Greg, thinner, his hair dark and cropped, wore a narrow, solid tie and white shirt. Without his glasses, he appeared strong and vibrant. An optimistic glow overflowed the portrait. 
Below the picture was an impressive array of credits achieved over his four years at Revere. He had no nickname, just Greg. She had written to Reedsville. The responses, both from the newspaper and the police, confirmed what she had suspected. Greg had been truthful about his relationship with Marco St. Germain. Marco had maliciously killed a young hitchhiker who had advanced knowledge of his drug dealings. Brought to trial and convicted for premeditated murder, mostly because of Greg's testimony, Marco faced life imprisonment in Pennsylvania. She thumbed to the picture of Mark J. St. Germain. No credits were posted under his photograph, but he had acquired the nickname Marco. He maintained a blatant and defiant dark-eyed stare. Then she turned directly to the candid shot of Marco, clad in his black leather jacket and collar turned up, with one leg perched on the wide stone steps and a cigarette butt wedged in the corner of his mouth, his brand of evil bypassed time. She slammed the book shut, stuffed it back in the carry-on, and concentrated on the winding road. At first, the rain only smeared the windshield, but soon the showers pelted the car and the road. She sped across the countryside as lightning, followed by cracking thunder, flashed intermittently. Leaves whipped by her window, some sticking to the windshield, before being swept away by the wipers. Caroline squinted at the surging water smearing the windshield as she navigated through the uninhabited area. The fuzzy outline of the East Greenwich Bridge meant she had driven within a few miles from the interstate. In the side mirror, the red taillights blended into the darkness. She gripped the wheel as a bright chain lightning display flashed across the sky and the subsequent thunder cannonade shook the car. She flicked the high beams again. A hunched-over old woman with ghostly white hair and draped in a knitted shawl shuffled along the bridge walkway between the girders. When the woman turned, Caroline recognized her from the restaurant last December. Instinctively, she accelerated but skidded onto the bridge's metal grid surface. She kept the pedal down and sped onto the opposite riverbank. In the mirror, the bridge faded to blackness as she raced down the narrow road. With the interstate just ahead, Caroline breathed deeply, dismissing the sighting as a part of her grief, and she neared a long row of trees close to the highway. Soon, she would be on her way to the airport. But as she moved under the trees, the East Greenwich Bridge reappeared again, and this time the white-haired woman stood center on the grid within the storm's turmoil. Caroline crunched her foot against the brake pedal. The car careened past the old lady toward the hill. The engine whined as she consistently checked the rearview mirror. She accelerated and kept repeating her disbelief as she started up the hill again. The woman and the East Greenwich Bridge materialized in the mist at the bottom of the hill. Not knowing how to break the cycle, she methodically stopped the car and peered over her right shoulder as she backed up the hill. Then she continued her journey to the airport. A bright glare near the tree cluster ahead prompted her to wonder if lightning had struck the ground. She shielded her eyes at the intensity, but as she approached the bare tree cluster, silhouetted in the stark light, the outline of the East Greenwich Bridge formed in the road ahead, and so did the old woman. This is insane! Gritting her teeth, she pushed the gas pedal and for a second thought about running down the gypsy. 
At incredible speed, Caroline whizzed by the woman, bounced over the bridge, and careened up the other side. The ghostly woman and the misty bridge vanished in the storm. She nodded when the green interstate signs, white letters reflected in the headlights. The delay might cause her to miss the plane, but at least the nightmare had ended. Cars zoomed down the highway as she signaled and veered up the ramp. She peered over her shoulder, but as she turned, it prepared to merge onto the interstate. The East Greenwich Bridge materialized. Her car rolled forward. Through the swishing wipers, the sight of the gypsy's coal eyes frazzled Caroline's already frayed nerves. She raised her hands to her mouth, and then she pulled at the door handle. In the mirror, the old lady floated as if she were buoyant on the ocean. Caroline slammed her foot against the pedal, revving the engine, but she remained on the bridge. The rain tapped a persistent drumbeat against the car roof, and the wipers accompanied the cadence. She bashed the steering wheel. The woman's ghostly form appeared at the side door. In unison, the electronic locks popped up. Caroline clawed at the door handle, but it loosened and then fell into her hand. A chilling air and the outside crack of thunder followed the gypsy into the car. No, no! I am aware of your problem. She had the same heavy accent. Her clothing and hair were dry. Why are you in my car? Do you prefer that I leave your life the way it is? I don't understand. How is this possible? This can't be happening. I don't believe you're real. I assure you, Caroline, that you only see a snippet of reality. Caroline jabbed her finger. You knew that Greg was going to die last December, and I don't know why you are out here in the middle of nowhere and why I keep coming back to this bridge. You have returned to where you need to be. Don't talk in riddles. I want to know why this is happening. It is not necessary that you know. I have asked you a question. Would you prefer to leave your life the way it is? Are you talking about Greg being dead? I am aware of the flow of change all around us. Then she paused and folded her hands as she looked upward. What, what is all around us? Other realities twisting and turning as if in nature. Vast whirlpools of existence like a mighty river flowing from the source. Only you can choose, Caroline. Only you can choose to become part of these primordial forces. I still don't understand. It is you who can become the catalyst, the agent of change, neatly stitching the fabric of time. You, Caroline, can annihilate the present. You can maneuver these forces and prevent your husband's untimely death. No, that is impossible. Greg is dead. How did you know Greg was going to die? I am a part of these forces, the unseen forces that are all around you. You knew Marco St. Germain, didn't you? You cannot understand. I am one with forces beyond your comprehension. I gather the energies for you, Caroline. 
but you must be the catalyst. I will return to nothingness, but you will participate. You cannot begin to understand. I am one with the forces beyond your comprehension. I can gather the energies for you, Caroline, but you must be the catalyst. I will return to nothingness, but you will participate. But you knew Greg was going to die, and I miss my husband. Do you understand? If you had listened, your husband would be alive now. No more delay. Board the plane with your uncle, but understand the implications of your actions from this moment onward by boarding that plane. Caroline, overwhelmed and confused, shielded her eyes to the same blinding light she had seen only a few minutes before in the tree cluster. Breathing carefully, she attempted to compose herself, but when she opened her eyes, the woman had vanished. She twisted toward the rear window. Where are you? She gripped the wheel, but as she crossed the bridge, she sensed, like that night in the restaurant, that she had entered another realm. All the way up the hill, as she glanced in the mirror, she sensed forces beyond her control. Chapter 4 4.06 p.m., July 15th, 1993. A long silver jet soared into the low-hanging olivine clouds. The dashboard clock's orange digits showed Caroline that she had little time left to get aboard her flight. Maybe the old lady's appearance at the bridge reflected a manifestation of her own desire to have Greg back again. Soon she was inside the parking garage and maneuvered the car into a narrow corner space. According to her digital watch, she had less than 12 minutes to get aboard. Her heart beat faster as she scurried around the car, popped the trunk, and grabbed her bags. Then she darted across the fluorescent-lit parking garage. She scurried up the steps into the busy terminal. In nine minutes, the plane would head to Fort Lauderdale whether or not she had boarded. She approached a long line of passengers that stretched back and forth along the strap barriers. Her heart pounded as she closed her moist eyes. She sat down on her suitcase and covered her face as she cried. Those in line turned as she looked upward and continued thinking of Greg and the bridge. Her watch approached 5 p.m. At the foot of the steel escalators to the second level, the white-haired old crone lifted her knitted shawl and her midnight eyes locked onto Caroline across the terminal. Caroline leaped to her feet. No! No! How can you be here? Two uniformed security officers moved from the outer doors toward her. The old woman ascended the escalator toward the next level. Caroline took two steps toward the escalator, but the gray-haired cop with a handlebar mustache held her arm. What seems to be the problem, miss? The old lady reached the top and faced her. Caroline looked into the cop's gray eyes. But when she turned back to the escalators, the old woman had disappeared. I miss my damn flight. Flight 1652 to Lauderdale. He looked up and squinted. 1652? Right, it left four minutes ago with my uncle on it. Miss, that flight leaves at 6 p.m. No, no, I booked that flight myself, officer. 
The flight left at five. The older cop pointed at the monitors and slowly shook his head. Caroline turned ever so slowly and saw he was correct. Impossible. She did it. Who? Why, that old... She stared at the escalator. My God, never mind. Thank you. Thank you for helping me. Anytime. Right, thanks. Caroline again checked the monitors and stared at Flight 1652. She shook her head, but her stomach fluttered as she nudged her suitcase up in line. A few people watched her. She became fixated on the second level, where the old woman had been at the top of the escalators. While she did not accept the old woman as being real, she could not deny that Flight 1652 would leave an hour later. Caroline saw her uncle's Navy Detroit Tigers baseball cap as she entered the plane. Ben sat midway down the aisle, near the emergency exit on the right. She dragged her bag forward. The huge crease between his brows tightened when he saw her. He stepped into the aisle and stared at her as she approached. John Jacob Jingleheimer Smith, look who's here. You okay? Oh, no, I'm not okay, she said, and she stowed her bag in the overhead. I was afraid of that. She secured the bag and looked him in the eye. What was that, Ben? Caroline, I wasn't going to believe her, but I have to tell you. I'm sorry, Ben. Believe who? The same nervous tightness she had experienced back at the East Greenwich Bridge now gripped her stomach. Her face tensed as she fell against the window seat. Oh, no. She said you were frightened back at the bridge. Goosebumps wandered up her back and down her arms. She said that I would finally strike it big, said Ben, taking the outside seat. He buckled his safety belt. But here's the spooky thing. She held Ben's wrist with both hands. She said we would have to redefine Greg's death. No, this, this makes no damn sense. How could she be in two places at once? I kept seeing her at the East Greenwich Bridge again and again and again. Ben's voice shook. I, I just don't know. She talked about the forces of fate and how they could converge in some new way. A few minutes later, the plane lurched and hummed over the bumpy concrete. Airport trucks and baggage haulers chugged through the mist back toward the terminal. Her hands twitched as the raindrops pierced the runway puddles. In the lighted terminal span, now several hundred yards away, the old woman leaned against the glass. Caroline pressed her face against the jet window and then threw herself back into the seat. Then she pulled the visor down over the window. The paranormal. She nervously pushed her fingers back through her thick hair. Ben modulated his voice to a whisper. There are things that exist out there, things beyond our control. The plane turned at the end of the runway. You've been telling me about this for years, like those voodoo experiments that you were involved in. You and your palm readers and your seances. I won't let myself start believing in that stuff, Ben. How did I know about this woman? The jet's mighty engines roared and the craft shot forward, pushing Caroline into the seat as she searched for answers. As the airliner quickly gained speed, the terminal, city buildings, and the ground blurred. I don't know how she knew. I just want to land in Lauderdale... Then I want to be sitting on a ship's deck, sunning myself and getting away from everything. 
plane tilted upward, leaving the ground, and the blue runway lights disappeared into the passing fog and clouds. Rain skimmed the outside window, and lightning flashed through the sky. Then she pressed the cabin headphones into her ears as Ben closed his eyes. She shut her eyes, but her foot gyrated enough to make the old biddy in the forward seat turn and stare. Caroline stopped shaking her foot, closed her eyes, and faded into a light sleep. 9.06 p.m., July 15, 1993. She opened her eyes to a field of bright shining stars above a silver cloud bank as steam jets whipped over the wing. The stars captivated her imagination, and her longing for Greg intensified with every twinkling pinpoint. She dragged the headphones over her ears and slowly turned to Ben, his reading glasses at the tip of his nose, as he read the Tribune. God, Ben, what happened? Ben pulled out his pack of camels from his shirt pocket. I could sure use a smoke. And what's the fine for that? Not like the good old days, Caroline. He leaned toward the window. Bad storm out. She held his hand. I'm sorry I got so upset back at the airport. He peered over his glasses, and with a gracious smile, he moved his hand through the air. Nah, I can't explain it, and neither can you. She turned and stared into the convoluted clouds extending to the horizon. The plane gained altitude a short time later, but Caroline grew increasingly uneasy. 10.13 p.m., July 15, 1993. The storm stretched down the coast toward Florida. Lightning continued to illuminate the clouds, and the turbulence rattled the plane. The sudden shifting not only unnerved her, but caused the belt to chafe her waist. How could the plane withstand such pressure? What the hell? asked Ben as the jet bounced. He blinked his eyes and then peered out the window. I ain't never seen nothing like this. Must be the night for strange things, Ben. Don't worry, in half an hour we'll be on the ground. Yeah, but will we be in one piece? You watch, Caroline. They're going to divert us somewhere. You watch. The beep sounded for landing. Caroline grabbed Ben when the pilot brought the plane downward into the storm. With the nose angle, the jet pierced the thick clouds. The surrounding thunder shook the aircraft shell, and the once distant lightning now flashed like a strobe light across the dimly lit cavern. A prodigious crack shook her as a river of fog whooshed over the free-falling plane. Ben! He knows what he's doing! The plane's angle and the rapid acceleration jammed her against the seat. Her face flattened and blood pushed into her eyes. She could not move her arms, nor could she speak. Even looking over toward Ben proved impossible. When breathing became untenable, she lost consciousness. The pilot's clear voice on the intercom awoke her. Her face and arms ached as if she had exercised. She looked up at the overhead speaker and pushed back her scattered hair. Are out of the turbulence and anticipate a smooth flight into the city. Well, I thought we were goners, said Ben. I really did. Are you all right, Ben? She asked, putting her hand on his wrist. Remind me to make train reservations on the way back. I have to use the restroom. Well, be my guest. Caroline unbuckled her seatbelt and stepped by her uncle. The plane casually sustained an altitude just above the clouds. She steadied herself on the seats and moved to the rear. Two people in faded jeans were already in line. The man had unwashed long blonde hair, sideburns, and a jersey with colors 
twisted into the fabric. His girlfriend, hair equally as unkempt, wore a scruffy green army jacket. Caroline folded her arms and waited to use the restroom. Bummer, said the man, his eyelids heavy as he looked up at her. Yeah, bummer, replied Caroline. His girlfriend went in the restroom first. Reebok? he asked, staring at her sneakers. Reebok? What are those, some kind of astronaut sneakers? Oh, real funny. Then he reached over, lifting up her wrist. Annoyed, she quickly retracted her hand, but the man seemed perplexed. Hey, that watch is weird. No hands, like some kind of countdown clock. You with NASA? No, I'm not with NASA. How come we got the space race with the Russians anyways? They're people, too. What? He dragged a pack of cigarettes from his shirt pocket. Then a yellow flame shot up from a small plastic lighter. I just told my uncle he could be fined for smoking on a plane. Hey, man, what are you, some kind of Gestapo? A white-haired man with a crew cut emerged from the adjacent restroom. The long-haired guy exhaled, slid by the man, and disappeared behind the door. A few seconds later, the woman in the army jacket opened the adjacent restroom door, and she, too, became fascinated by Caroline's LED watch. Don't you start, said Caroline as she moved into the restroom. Caroline splashed the cold water over her face. Her eyes reflected the fatigue from a rough flight. She removed a tissue and wiped her eyes as the pilot came over the intercom again. Ladies and gentlemen, we're on our final approach to Philadelphia. Her green eyes flared open as she turned to the tiny perforated ceiling speaker. Philadelphia? We apologize for any inconvenience on this flight. Outside weather conditions are clear and the air temperature is 52 degrees. Caroline checked her watch. 9.15 a.m., September 30th, 1993. She fell back against the stainless sink. Then she threw the paper towel toward the waste container and pushed open the door. Ben approached with a bewildered expression on his face. He opened his mouth several times to speak. Ben, what the hell's going on here? The pilot asked everyone to take their seats while the plane landed. Ben had tears in his eyes and shook his head. Caroline, what does your watch say? She looked at her watch again. Ben, it says September 30th, 1968. 1968? Are you sure? asked Ben. Yeah. I just saw a newspaper too, Caroline, that read September 30th, 1968. People are reading magazines for September and October of 68. I saw this Time magazine about law and order problems in 1968. Why are we in Philadelphia? She altered reality. Somehow she sent us back in time. Don't you see? Oh, bull, said Caroline, shaking her head. Unable to believe Ben, she stumbled down the aisle and leaned over to view the reading material. The flight attendant approached her. Miss, we'll be landing if you will take your seat. The date. What's today's date? asked Caroline. Why, well, today is the 30th. Caroline stared as she slowly backtracked down the aisle. Then she faced Ben and dropped back into the seat. Ben buckled her seatbelt. As the plane pitched downward, she stuck her cheek against the cold window glass as her uncle held her wrist. Correct me if I'm wrong, Caroline, but isn't Greg's hometown Reedsville about 60 or 70 miles from Philadelphia? Caroline slowly nodded, intrigued by the streetlights and the plazas below. 
How can we be back in time, Ben? Come on. Ben took out his camels and struck a match to his cigarette. His eyes opened wide, but she said nothing. We are here for one reason, Caroline, to prevent Greg's accident. He was hurt sometime in December of 1968, correct? December 20th. Don't you see? You have a chance. But more than that, Greg has a chance, not only for his career, but for his life. If we can help him get away from that creep St. Germain, I think this whole thing is quite impossible. Ben exhaled. If he doesn't hang around St. Germain and doesn't implicate him in the hitchhiker's death, there'd be no motive for revenge. This is insane, Ben. As the plane maneuvered toward the final approach, she panned the city lights to the horizon. Images of the black and white yearbook pictures moved like ocean waves through her thoughts, captivating her with the notion of Greg being miraculously alive 60 or 70 miles inland. She sat back as the plane prepared to touch down, and she glanced briefly at her uncle's almost drunken grin. Chapter 5 Caroline awakened on the humming, smoke-filled greyhound, but her early elation about seeing Greg turned into a cautious hesitation. How would she assimilate into the culture, or explain anything to this 17-year-old kid? She smiled at Ben, his fluffy gray head pressed against a small pink pillow as he slept. Since leaving Philadelphia, the bus rumbled down the interstate through the mountain gaps and the tunnels, before diverting onto the state road to Reedsville. Amidst the brightly colored hills near her husband's hometown, on a crisp October morning in 1968, she fully accepted her fate. Near the crest of a long straight hill, the traffic slowed under a large green and white road sign. Reedsville, Route 205, next right. Ben's eyes were half open and he rested his head on the pillow as he stared out the dirt-smeared window. He slowly sat up and dropped the pillow onto his lap. His groggy voice became louder. So, what's the good news, Caroline? You've slept right through. We're in Reedsville. Ah, the bridge construction is holding us up, said Ben, looking out past the driver. Reedsville, isolated within the colorful undulating Pennsylvania foliage, had a mix of steel and brick industrial buildings interspersed with residences spread over the countryside. The road narrowed at an arched green metal bridge spanning the wide, ever-moving river as it cut between the surrounding hills and the bordering gravel beds. Railroad tracks paralleled two narrow highways on either side of the river. Paul Revere's high school's clock tower jutted toward the brilliant blue sky. The massive high school building, composed of mustard-colored bricks, split into several sections atop a central hill. A rusted brown water tower behind the school overlooked the town. The divided central roadway with terraced red brick buildings led to storefronts far below the high school hill. On this cool autumn morning, light smoke drifted from numerous chimneys into the cloudless sky, but Caroline's thoughts moved like a magnet to last December in Chicago when Marco St. Germain gunned down her husband. But she and Ben had returned to 1968, and despite what Ben told her about the turmoil in the United States 
an odd quiescence permeated the isolated acreage of northeastern Pennsylvania. Doesn't seem possible, does it? Ben briefly touched her wrist and surveyed the town, but Caroline fixated on the school. I wish I could go see him right now. Well, we have to remember why we're here, Caroline, and stop that accident in December. Eighty or so days is a long time to be hanging out, Ben. A mournful joy hung over her as the bus crossed the arch bridge, slowed on the ramp, and bounced onto the bumpier roads in town. Caroline studied the rust-pitted old cars planted along a myriad of storefronts. Ben, think of it. I'm 15 years older than Greg rather than 10 years younger. Isn't that an odd turn of events? I was 17 once. She smiled and shook her head. I bet you were. He pointed his index finger. You be careful, Caroline. Tears filled her eyes. She removed a sweater from her carry-on. Ben, I can't see a 17-year-old chasing a 32-year-old woman. Like I said, Caroline, you have to be careful. She slid the sweater over her head and then peered out the window. No cable channels back here. No satellite dishes, said Ben as he thought. We need a game plan. If for some reason we don't stop that accident, we have to stop St. Germain. Just the mention of his name sent shockwaves through her stomach. Marco St. Germain's black and white yearbook picture had petrified her. Yet dealing with her husband's future killer here in 1968 presented a chilling prospect. Ben, I don't want to see that man. Well, Greg began hanging around with him after the accident. That's why we have to stop that accident. Busy little shops, a few restaurants and bars with flashing neon beer signs filled the business district. In this time, people were driving less and walking more. Despite being enthralled with the town, she suddenly realized their predicament. Okay, Ben, how do you propose we actually live here? I think you said we had about $160. We have no place to stay, no food, and no visible means of support. Yeah, so what's the problem? He raised his gray eyebrows and smiled broadly. What's the problem? What's the problem? How do we survive here? I have a tiger by the tail. Old Benny has everything under control. I've been thinking about it all the way from Philly, except when I slept. It's all very simple. She exited the bus slowly into the cooler air of a time period before she was born. Drifting fireplace smoke filled the area as behemoth cars rumbled along the road and a few noisy trucks headed for the highway. You want your coat? asked Ben as he pulled a light windbreaker over his head. No, I'm okay. Ben said nothing as they inched around the concrete terminal, but she slowed and stopped within the cobblestone turnaround. Parked cars and empty spaces littered the long, sloping Main Street Road. Houses and three-decker apartments lined the side roads. The clock tower's bold black numerals were prominent even at this distance. An occasional steam burst or smoke from a roofing vent twisted into the crisp air. The familiar yearbook quadrangle, diagonal and gray from below, opened toward the front steps of the high school. A youthful Greg existed in that very building. How could she ever tell him what had happened? She waited in the Sunoco gas station next to a bar room and watched the attendants pumping gas into the large cars. They were giving away free drinking glasses with a fill-up. Ben opened the garage door and smiled broadly at her. 
Do you know they're giving away free wildlife glasses, Caroline? Ben, we're all set. Our troubles are over. Why do I think our troubles are just beginning? Look, I talked to this guy. In the bar? We're all set. Her acidic stomach made her twist and turn as they trudged up the sidewalk. The cold wind, like an evil spirit off the river, ruffled her hair. Ben pointed to a four-story brick building. A pink neon sign flashed out at the big house every few seconds. She grabbed Ben by the arm. Ben, what in God's name is this? Trust me, Caroline, you'll love it. Oh, dear Lord. The old man with clumps of white hair handed him a key once Ben thrust several bills in his face. He said something to Ben and pointed up the stairs. Room 850. She smiled and then laughed nervously as she moved up the creaky stairway. Ben pushed a button and the overhead translucent lamp shined through cobwebs and dust. Not bad for three floors, room 850. We'll be out of here by the end of the week, I guarantee it. He moved ahead of her down the hall and quickly pushed the key into the hole. With great trepidation, she walked by him and entered a cramped, dirty room with peeling green-flowered wallpaper. He reassured her with a hug. She shook her head and she looked at the torn blue spreads on the twin beds. And how are you going to do it, Ben? Simple, simple. I'm going to bet on the World Series. I already know what my Tigers will do. Chapter 6 Caroline's stomach wrenched as she crunched the leaves on the cracked sidewalk concrete. The clock tower's sharp shadows separated the quadrangle into geometric shades of darkness passing across the midday sun. Worn yellow bricks surrounded the embedded green pane windows, reflecting the silver sky. The linear slate roof and the oxidized copper gutters capped the humongous school's three wings. At an alcove bus station across the street, she positioned herself on a cold stone bench. The wind rustled her hair and chilled her ears. She kept her hands in her pockets. Her eyes swung like a panning camera as she followed the front facade to the frosted gymnasium windows. Leaves spun through the air, then tumbled across the quadrangle slab until they were swept around the granite columns near the front entrance. Young girls with long flowing hair and boys with tapered sideburns, just like the yearbook pictures, bounded down the steps while other students lingered around the grounds. Knowing Greg walked the corridors inside the massive school sent confusing thoughts through her head. Maybe he would burst through the outside doors. As she stood, she realized he would not even recognize her, nor would he even understand the pending December accident. She warmed her hands in her pockets again as she crossed the road. School buses arrived along the gymnasium doors in the lot to the right. More leaves spiraled upward on the windswept hill as she tiptoed up the stone stairs and stepped onto the quadrangle slab. It was as if she had been dropped inside Greg's yearbook pictures. She stopped below the front steps and then faced the faded green doors. Then she climbed more stairs and held the cold door handle. She gazed inside the window as a set of inner doors abruptly opened, revealing an expansive mosaic foyer. Two giggling teenage girls exited and the doors closed slowly. The girls scurried down the stairs. Fearful, 
Caroline raised her hands to her mouth and positioned herself against the door. She breathed rapidly and stared at the steady traffic pulse across the arch bridge in the valley. A lightheadedness ushered in panic. She scampered down the stairs and jaunted across the quadrangle as the city bus engine grew louder. Circling around in front of the bus, Caroline pulled herself inside. She fell into the seat and closed her eyes. The bus rocked forward and dipped down the hill. She pressed her face against the cold glass. The school, with Greg somewhere inside, rose high as the bus descended the hill. Her heart flooded as she attempted to control her accelerated breathing. Maybe she should have entered the building, but going inside meant seeing her dead husband alive again. At the bottom of the hill, she dropped a couple of dimes into the chrome slot next to the driver and exited the bus. Binghamton's department store, a stretch of glass window displays and a white brick facade, enveloped an entire block. The bricks surrounded a soft pink neon store sign. Many years into the future, Greg had alluded to the store in their final minutes together in Chicago. Her light coat and jeans mixed into a collage of colorful fall leaves in the background, mannequins and deep-colored sweaters inside the display. Returning to 1968 confounded her as she stared inside the window. Then she headed for the aluminum frame entrance. She pushed gently on the glass, opening the door to a plethora of perfume aromas, sweet candies, and a rich food smell that carried across the spacious store. Glass counters and display cases, like bulwarks, formed a symmetrical maze. Almost like a museum, Doric columns rose upward to ornate gold moldings in a towering white ceiling. An operator-controlled elevator system emptied passengers near the jewelry department. She crossed the grainy floor panels, but was cognizant that Greg worked here part-time. As she passed the men's dress shirts stacked on shelves, she realized that Binghamton's might be an easier place to meet Greg. She asked one of the clerks, a sharp woman with dyed black hair, where she could apply for a job. My dear, said the little woman as she pointed to the elevator across the store, you take the elevator to the third floor. The office is directly across from the elevators. You ask any of the girls up there and they'll help you. As she approached the open elevator, a well-dressed man in a tailored suit and a paisley red tie sat on a small stool in the corner. He had bright brown eyes, a quick smile, and he stood when he saw her in the opening. Yes, miss, what floor may I take you to? Third floor, please. You're applying for a job. Caroline smiled for the first time since she had walked through the front doors. Then she nodded as he closed the slotted doors. I've worked here for 27 years. I've seen him come and I've seen him go. I'm sure you have, Mr. Gill. Well, Gill, I want to see if I can work in this fine establishment. The outer door is closed. Gill pushed down a chrome lever in the corner and the car started upward. Through the wire mesh window, the first floor disappeared into darkness. Ever worked in a store before? I uh, can't say that I have. Well, you'll do just fine, Miss Caroline. Pretty name. Thank you. She quickly blurted out her next thought. Greg, uh, provost work here? A gaping smile filled his thin face. Nice kid, Greg. Nice kid. Goosebumps crawled up her back and trickled down her arms. Well, I have a mutual friend, a customer, who said he was nice to her. That boy would be nice to Genghis Khan. 
Caroline's eyes brightened and she chuckled. Yeah, he probably would. He's one hell of a ball player. I go to as many Revere games as I can. The elevator whined and stopped with a jolt. Well, thank you. Gil pulled the cage door and the outside door slid open. Miss Caroline, this is the second floor. Curtains. Oh. A short man in a pinstripe navy suit with a few strands of dark hair across his exposed crown approached the elevator. He looked up from his clipboard and removed his reading glasses. Well, good morning, Gil. A top of the morning to you, Mr. Fine. Fine produced a quirky grin. Gil closed the inner door and the main door rumbled shut. Oh, Mr. Fine, this is Caroline. She's applying for a job. Well, good, good. His voice sounded like a reverberating kazoo. He looked her over and then with a slight nod he grinned. Uh, go, go see Mrs. Stone. Tell her Mr. Fine told you to meet her. Well, thank you, Mr. Fine. I appreciate that, she said as she shook his smooth hand and the elevator started up to the third floor. We can always use good people. She had flashes of meeting Greg somewhere in this big store. Then her thoughts drifted back to the school and the basketball court. The door slid open, jarring her from her daydreams. Well, off to Mrs. Stone, and thank you one more time. You have no idea what this means to me, Mr. Fine. Oh, no problem, no problem. Gil leaned from the control and his eyes opened. Hey, great life, huh? She nodded. Yeah, I guess it is, Gil. A rotund young woman at the switchboard repeated her greeting. Welcome to Binghamton's. You're important to us. She waited behind a beanpole little lady returning a single pair of nylon stockings. A gray-haired woman counted back the little lady's change. Caroline stepped forward. Good morning, said the woman. Her gold badge identified her as Amanda. The same greeting appeared above her name. You're important to us. My name is Caroline, Pro Caroline Thatcher. Mr. Fine sent me up here to apply for a job. Oh, are we hiring Mabel? She asked as she turned to the white-haired woman at the desk behind her. I didn't think so. And Caroline's stomach tightened. You know Mr. Fine and his budget. Amanda crunched her lips as if she were biting into a steak and then turned back to Caroline. I think you could at least fill out the store employment application, my dear. Well, is Mrs. Stone here? Well, she is in the store, yes, she said, looking at Caroline's dejected countenance. She removed a sheet of white paper from the pad and then slid it across the counter. Then she smacked a pen on the application. Be thorough. Mrs. Stone is very detailed. Yes, ma'am. You may have a seat next to Polly at the switchboard. Caroline moved along the counter, wondering why she had thought she could just walk off the street and work with Greg. As Polly answered the phone calls, Caroline knew as she began writing her name in blue ink that she would need to lie about her background. She closed her eyes briefly. You can't go to sleep at Binghamton's, at least not where they can find you, <laughs> said Polly with a loud laugh. Caroline grinned. I heard you say Mr. Fine sent you up here. How did you hear that? You were answering the phones. Honey, I hear everything in this store. <laughs> Problem with Fine is he will say he's going to hire, but you heard Mabel talk about his budget. Caroline smiled again, amazed that Polly had heard that too. So how do I get the job? She removed her headset and rested her chin on her folded hands. You have to impress Mrs. Stone. Good luck. 
Caroline had just passed the application to Amanda when she heard high heels clicking quickly against the linoleum. A scrawny fireball of a woman approached like an engine minus the train. The woman reached out her cold hand, clamped quickly, and then released. I am Mrs. Stone. I understand that you are seeking employment with Binghamton's department store. I am Mr. Font. Yes, I know. Please follow me into my office. The heels clicked again. Caroline followed her around the switchboard. Polly rolled her big brown eyes as she spoke to a customer. Fluorescent lights snapped on as Mrs. Stone ushered her inside the cold office. A silver gooseneck lamp like an interrogation light shined a narrow beam onto the metal desk. Mrs. Stone slammed the door and took a position in an oak captain's chair. She held Caroline's application with both hands, scanned it, and then looked, and then looked up. You are missing your social security number in a permanent address. Everything else looks in place. I can get you that information. Oh, you don't have your card with you? Well, with so much online. I beg your pardon. I mean, it's on my dresser, and since I moved here with my uncle... <sighs> Honestly, Miss Thatcher, arriving at a job interview without information? I'll get you all you need. Ill-prepared is ill-mannered. Yes, Mrs. Stone. Mrs. Stone stood abruptly and marched to the door. She quickly opened it, and Polly's voice filtered into the room. You don't want to know about my background? Your background, Miss Thatcher, is meaningless without the designated two items. Section 4, items 5 and 6. Her eyes filled. I am so sorry. Mrs. Stone nodded as she walked back across the floor. The heels clattered again. Caroline said goodbye to Polly and trudged to the elevator. The upper wall dial showed that the elevator had passed the second floor. She jabbed the button and shook her head. A few seconds later, the elevator light filled the glass window. The inner cage opened and Gil, now sporting a white rose in his lapel, slid open the outer door. His smile fell away as she entered the car. Once the car started downward, he held her wrist. You need to accentuate the positive, Caroline. What's positive about that cold fish? Ah, you met Mrs. Stone. He slowed the elevator at the first floor and faced her. You know, when you keep thinking something good will happen, it will. Gil, you're an optimist. Remember what I said. Thank you. He opened the cage and the outer door. Again, the store aromas filled the car. Caroline walked briskly along the jewelry cases and toured the front doors. But from behind, she heard Gil call out, Great life, huh? She smiled but had no idea how she would fill in items five and six on Mrs. Stone's application. Being with Greg would have been wonderful, yet there would be other opportunities to connect with him. In the cold hall, Caroline heard Ben laugh as she jammed the key in the hotel door. She nudged the door open. In the tungsten light, Ben sat amidst a prodigious pile of cash. Well, welcome back, he said in a high voice. You ready to find another place now? Ben, what have you done? she asked, standing over him. Money flew like leaves above the high school. Yes, I worked in Binghamton's, except it wasn't Binghamton's, it was called Edgar's. A real fun place to work, three floors and a basement section, just like in the book. 
I did hang out in my share of bar rooms way back when, but I stayed away from gambling. Ben has a huge advantage knowing the future. Caroline will work at Binghamton's, and meeting Greg surpasses all her hopes and dreams. This is what will happen in Episode 2. And the next time we will meet Mickey Muldoon from Muldoon's Bar in 1968 Reedsville, Pennsylvania. 1968 was a long time ago, but not if the river of fate has brought you back. I'm Robert P. Fitton. Episode 2 awaits. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.